All right, here's a blast of information before we start the show. Check out boingboing.net for more great podcasts. Head to youarenotsosmart.com to learn more about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. Get updates about new podcasts and other You Are Not So Smart related news through Twitter at NotSmartBlog. And you can also find You Are Not So Smart at Facebook, where I sometimes give away t-shirts and books, as well as take your questions for upcoming guests. You can follow me on Twitter at David. McCraney, and please send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 12. Your client have anything she wants to say? I think she does, Judge. Come forward, please. <laughs> This is the voice of Lisa Nowak. She's about to speak to the person she is charged with attempting to murder. I'm glad to have this opportunity to apologize to Ms. Shipman in person. Why don't you turn and face Ms. Shipman when you do this? I'm glad to have the opportunity to apologize to you, Ms. Shipman, in person. I am sincerely sorry for causing fear and misunderstanding and all of the intense public exposure that you have suffered. Um, I hope very much that we can all move forward from this um, with privacy and peace. And this is the same woman, Lisa Nowak, a few years earlier on television, living out her dream, being interviewed in space. Hey, what are you guys eating up there? Is the food really gross or is it uh, edible? <laughs> well, we have a number of different things to eat. One of the popular items is shrimp cocktail. And, uh, when this audio was recorded, Lisa Nowak had a degree in aerospace engineering, another in aeronautical engineering, another in astronautical engineering. She was a naval flight officer, a captain, a military test pilot, and then after achieving all of these things, she became an astronaut who specialized in robotics. You're hearing her aboard the space shuttle Discovery. She became one of the small number of people who, during her 12 days in space, floated outside the space shuttle in what they call a spacewalk. About one year after returning to Earth, she was arrested in Orlando, Florida, after driving non-stop from Houston, a distance of around 900 miles. And in Orlando, she committed the crime that would end her career. The news lately has been nothing but horrible. The Middle East! As The Daily Show points out in this clip right after the events came to light, the media seized on this in a way that they, that they only do for really, really juicy stories. And boy, was this one juicy. It had everything why did this story capture the media's lack of imagination well it's a story of a woman scorned a glamorous job a car filled with a knife pepper spray and rubber tubing and uh oh there was one other thing Noak drove from houston to orlando wearing diapers she was wearing diapers did she say why she wore the diapers so that she wouldn't have to pull over during her 950 mile journey diapers 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 she wore a kind of diaper. And in a bizarre display of NASA ingenuity, diapers. It wasn't just news programs that couldn't let this go. Late night talk shows just kept putting this into their monologues. This is a montage put together by ABC I, News. I know I've already talked about this, but I, I, I just cannot get over this whole astronaut story. Uh, I want to... I. It's just so crazy. NASA astronaut Lisa Nowak, as I said, she fell so in love with fellow astronaut Bill Offaline that she drove 900 miles to confront his other girlfriend. Can you imagine it driving 900 miles to wreak vengeance wearing a diaper? 
As you know, she went to court yesterday and was released in her own incontinence. So she was... When they apprehended her, she was wearing a wig and an adult diaper. <laughs> and there's a lot of confusion because originally authorities thought she was Elton John. And it just kept spinning into itself over and over again. You, you ended up with these songs on the internet about her, like these. Cover up your slamming body with a trench coat and a wig. Slip into some diapers, you know the kind I like. So I'm presenting all of this to you not in the way I originally intended. I had this other idea about what I was going to do, but I realized as I was putting this together that it just became this big joke. It was just a joke. Everywhere it was just this big joke about what had happened between this woman and these two other people. And I was going to make it into a joke. My original idea for the opening of this episode was to have um, a little radio play, an old-fashioned radio play, like the astronaut who loved too much or something like that. And when I started going through all of the uh, old files and and rereading about this woman and listening to all this stuff... It just sort of got to me and um, I decided not to do it as a big joke after hearing this. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Um, My name is Colleen Shipman, as I've just said, and shortly after I turned 30 years old, Lisa Nowak hunted me down and attacked me in a dark parking lot. Her attack was part of a well-researched well-planned and deliberate crime. Now, almost so three years later, I decided I not to do a big joke at the beginning, but I still couldn't think of a better example of the power that jealousy has over the mind. It takes an incredible amount of resolve and self-control to become an astronaut, not to mention all the other incredible achievements that Lisa Nowak had accomplished. She signed autographs for children. She was married with three children of her own. She was featured in magazines. She was one of the few human beings to float in space and look down on the earth. It shocks me. It terrifies me to accept that an emotion like jealousy can be so powerful that Lisa Nowak could drive for 14 hours with the alleged intent to kidnap and murder her romantic rival. And in all that time, she never turned back. It astounds me that an emotion, a passion could cloud a person so completely that she could decide to give up everything for which she had worked so hard. It makes you wonder, could something like that happen to me or someone I love? And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney and I will be your host. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a new topic in the realm of self-delusion and then we interview an expert on that topic before eating a cookie. This episode, we will explore jealousy with psychologist David Buss, who wrote a book about his own research into jealousy and stalking titled The Dangerous Passion, Why Jealousy is as Necessary as Love and Sex. He argues in that book that jealousy is adaptive. That is to say that the tendency to become jealous was selected for by evolution and thus comes with every copy of the human brain and isn't really necessarily learned. It's more something that is evoked from deep within our evolutionary past. David Buss argues that since jealousy is something that is impossible to excise from the human mind, that means we can develop reliable strategies for dealing with it. You can study it across cultures, you can study it across uh, eras, across different people and different age groups, and the same patterns will keep emerging, which means that you can come up with a reliable way to, to deal with the negative effects of extreme jealousy. In the book, he writes that in shelters that cater to battered women, one study revealed that 55% of the women inside that shelter, they were in there because their partner had become so jealous that they became violent in some horrifying way. And among women who are in a, uh, a battered shelter like that, 94% report that jealousy has at some point led to violence in the past. The leading cause of spousal violence is sexual jealousy, according to David Buss's research. And that's true for all genders, all sexual orientations, all cultures around the globe. 
It occurs, uh, battery occurs in every culture that has been studied by psychologists. And a long-term study into the phenomenon uh, conducted in Canada found that women were three times more likely to be killed by an intimate partner than by a stranger, and that married women were nine times more likely. So since that, about half of all of this violence uh, stems from, or is the uh, one of the main elements that is reported afterward is some f- sort of... Um, of intense jealousy. It's something that is important to study. And according to David Buss, the, um, what we call jealousy is not as in the, uh, in the past psychology considered it a neurosis or a weakness of the mind, as he puts it, uh, as, as sort of an immature emotion, a, um, an inability to deal with anger. He argues that's not so. He is, he says that his research, uh, indicates to him that, Jealousy is an evolved trait of the human brain, uh, an evolved um, emotional response to a certain set of environmental cues, and that it's adaptive. But I well, want you to know that I am sensitive to the fact that a lot of people don't like evolutionary psychology. It's a young science inside of a young science. And um, in the past, there's been a lot of speculation that comes out of evolutionary psychology that a lot of people just don't like. Um, I get that. Its central premise is absolutely true. It just has to be true that the brain and nervous system of every human being, including you, including me, uh, is built by genes. And um, those genes were subject to the evolutionary pressures over millions of years, the same sort of evolutionary pressures that elongate the necks of giraffes and hide the fingers of dolphins within their flippers and so on. So if um, evolution is uh, at play on the genes that make brains, then definitely so the things that come out of brains are all, is also affected by evolution. So that's the central premise of evolutionary psychology, and there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, um, the problem with evolutionary psychology that most people have is that a lot of things can be explained from a cultural viewpoint, and um, that's totally true. Think about something like language. Um, there's a word for fingernail. I presume there's a word for fingernail in every language on earth, but, um, there's probably not a gene for the word fingernail. And it would be ridiculous to write a news story that said, um, you know, human beings genetically predisposed to, um, come up with a word for fingernail, but, um, there might be a genetic predisposition for language. That's something that's debated in science and, or maybe language is the is uh, there's a foundation, a genetic foundation for something that leads to language. And that's why you see language across all human cultures. So when it comes to foundations, I don't think it's controversial or speculative to presume that there is an evolutionary source for all of our behaviors, thoughts, perceptions, and emotions. It is speculative, however, and this is the rub. This is the big rub, right? Does to say that we have pinned those sources down for sure. Uh, and it's just not like tracing, it's not like tracing the evolution of a line of dinosaurs because thoughts, behaviors, perceptions, and emotions don't leave behind fossils. So it is, uh, prickly territory to study human behavior from an evolutionary perspective because we have to ask ourselves, how deep can we go? How far down beyond cultural influences can we dig to get at the sources of our behaviors? How sure can we be that we've made a real discovery and aren't just speculating in a way that satisfies our preconceived notions of how the world is or ought to be? Um, And if you throw in things like patriarchy and uh, privilege, you really can see how this could become a mess, become very blurry, and certainty can become very difficult. Um, Our guest today, David Buss, says that he has taken all of this into account in his research and that uh, his hypothesis that uh, jealousy serves an adaptive purpose, and that's why it's uh, st- has stuck around for so long in human beings, uh, is supported by the evidence that he has conducted in further lines of research. So to assuage your fears, um, that is the line of um, understanding that he's coming from in today's interview. Um, so all that being said, here is uh, our guest, David Buss, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas who studies human mating. He is the author of the evolution of desire, strategies of human mating, the dangerous passion, why jealousy is as necessary in love as love and sex. And that's what we're going to talk about. The murderer next door, why the mind is designed to kill. That has a lot to do with stalking. Why women have sex, understanding sexual motivations from adventure 
to revenge. And um, he literally wrote the book on evolutionary psychology. He wrote the um, the textbook that many schools use to teach um, the discipline. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this interview. So let's talk about jealousy with David Buss. All right, David, you wrote the book, uh, Dangerous Passion, Why Jealousy is as Necessary as Love and Sex. And you study this topic. You are an expert in, in human jealousy. And it's one of those things I, I bet a lot of people don't realize that scientists study. Um, from a scientific perspective, from a psychology perspective, um, what is your definition of jealousy? Jealousy is an emotion that gets activated when there's a, a, a threat to a valued relationship. And what I focus on is threats to uh, romantic relationships. Of course, jealousy can occur in other sorts of relationships like uh, sibling jealousy or even friendship jealousy. But I focus on romantic jealousy or mating jealousy because that's, uh, that's where most of the interesting action is. And so how does the current scientific view of jealousy differ from the sort of old school, maybe the like um, literary romantic view of what jealousy is? Well, historically, jealousy has been viewed as a, uh, uh, a pathology or a character defect or a reflection of low self-esteem um, or, uh, or even in some cases a delusion. And, um, you know, these are, these are the historical views of jealousy. But what I argue is that jealousy is, in fact, an exquisitely uh, adaptive emotion and that it evolved in the context of, of long-term mating relationships. And uh, you cannot have long-term mating relationships without what I call defense mechanisms to protect those relationships from both uh, uh, what I call mate poachers, that is, those who are trying to intrude on your romantic relationship and take your mate away, uh, as well as your mate getting unhappy and giving off cues to infidelity or leaving the relationship entirely. And so jealousy is that emotion. It gets activated. We don't wake up in the morning and uh, get jealous just like when we wake up in the morning and get hungry. Uh, but we, we get jealous when it is activated by threats to this uh, romantic relationship, either from the outside or inside. So it's not just a variation on anger then. No, absolutely not. Uh, it has uh, ex exquisitely uh, sculpted design features, so it's uh, triggered by certain sorts of things. Now, of course, um, anger is uh, often part of jealousy, but jealousy is one of these compact, complex blends of emotions. When people feel jealous, they feel, uh, to varying degrees, anger, sadness, embarrassment, humiliation, uh, fear and other sorts of emotions. And so it's not, uh, it doesn't fall into, you know, one clear cut, uh, emotion like anger or fear. It's this blend and it's blended, but it's not a random blend. It's a blend that's designed to ward off these threats to our valued relationships. So, uh, some people are going to, when they hear about things like this, when they, specifically when they hear about a, um, a line of thinking coming out of evolutionary psychology, they're going to say, come on, jealousy is just this, it's just a, a cultural phenomenon. This is something that the culture tells us to do, that we're encouraged to do through our culture. How do, how do you see, um, what is your perspective in, in thinking about jealousy as being something that's adaptive and it's not something that is emerging just from culture? Well, the, yeah, the jealousy emerging from culture and, and uh, huge variations across culture, that's been the standard party line in the social sciences, but it's flat out wrong. That line was promulgated by Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist who claimed that on the Samoan islands, there was no such thing as jealousy or sexual jealousy, and that uh, people were free and happy to share their mates and their sex partners with other people. Um, but it's simply not the case. Subsequent anthropologists have gone back to the Samoan Islands like Derek Freeman and found that indeed, uh, not only is jealousy very prevalent, uh, but it's the leading cause of spousal abuse and even homicide, uh, both uh, same-sex homicide and mate homicide on the Samoan Islands. 
Uh, in fact, even in Margaret Mead's own ethnographies of the Samoan uh, islands, she describes episodes of jealousy. And so it's sort of remarkable that she concluded that there was no such thing as jealousy when it's right there in her own records. So um, we've done extensive cross-cultural research on the topic of jealousy to see whether things like sex differences in the triggers of jealousy are universal across cultures, and they are. Uh, so, for example, what we one of the evolutionary predictions is that male sexual jealousy is designed to focus very heavily on the partner's sexual infidelity uh, because that is the act that would have jeopardized a man's certainty that he's the father, the, uh, his certainty in paternity. Women are never uh, unsure about their maternity, and so if a, a woman's partner has sex with someone else by itself, that sexual infidelity doesn't threaten her certainty that she's the genetic mother. However, if her partner has sex with someone else, it can be just as damaging because the woman uh, risks losing the man's time, commitment, investment, all of which can get channeled to a rival woman that the man is having sex with. And one of the things that we know about men is that they tend to give time, energy, resources, and attention to women that they have sex with. So, um, but women tend to focus more heavily on not the sexual aspects of the infidelity, but rather cues to the long-term diversion of these resources. So what, what I call emotional infidelity. So to just give a concrete example, former student of mine published a study recently to, uh, that, that was a brilliant study that looked at the TV show uh, Cheaters and, uh, and, and recorded what people's spontaneous reactions were when they discovered their partner was cheating. And one of the things he found is that indeed in these jealous interrogations, as he called them, men want to know, the first thing men want to know, did you have sex with them? And the first thing women want to know is, do you love her? And so this reflects these fundamental sex differences in the design of uh, sexual jealousy and supports the uh, evolutionary hypothesis that this, in fact, is an evolved emotion. And the, these sex differences emerge in every culture that has been examined, and there are some 30 different cultures that have been studied by this point. Uh, so strong support for the evolutionary view. The notion that it's just a, an arbitrary cultural construction just has no support. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. That you've, you, had you seen this across uh, multiple cultures and uh, maybe even if as much as it's possible, multiple eras. And uh, and what I'm, under, what I'm hearing from you is that, yes, we do see it across multiple cultures in the way that you've described it. Um, yes, exactly. And, and, yeah, and, and that's what you expect is, is uh, you, you expect you, from an evolutionary perspective, you expect universality of the underlying psychology of jealousy. You don't necessarily expect universality in the manifestations in behavior because, for example, in some cultures, the rates of infidelity are very, very low. In other cultures, the rates of infidelity are very high. And so what we expect is that the uh, magnitude of jealousy will be lower in some cultures, higher in other cultures, but that, but that the underlying psychology of jealousy will be essentially part of human nature. Okay, yeah. So um, to that end, do you, and, and if, you, if you don't specifically know if this is true or not, uh, just forgive me, but I was wondering how, how prevalent is this among primates in general? Do we see this in other primates or is it only something we see among human beings? Well, we see uh, uh, aspects of it that look similar in other primates, but there's a big difference. So, for example, our closest primate relative, the chimpanzee, with whom we share more than 98% of our DNA, uh, they show things that are like jealousy in the sense that when the female comes into estrus, the alpha male gets very upset uh, if, there, if other males try to mate with the female during the estrus phase. And so they get angry. They sometimes will beat, beat the guys up. They'll sometimes even beat up the females. But in humans, we have something very, very different. We have different mating strategy, and that's we have, we have long-term mating, long-term committed mating as one of our primary mating strategies. And so in, in that sense, 
it's a different sort of thing. So you see, you see immediate sexual jealousy in other primates like chimpanzees, but, the, but what I call jealousy in the service of mate retention, uh, you don't because mate retention is something that you only need if you're going to get involved in long-term committed romantic relationships. And that's what humans have. And, and you know, it, it's kind of interesting that uh, love is one of the other emotions that I think is pivotal to the evolution of long-term mating in humans. But we also need jealousy as that, as that safeguard against defection, to, to defend against threats. Because the fact of the matter is, um, there are always threats. Nothing is, nothing is certain in life. Their divorce rates are, in America, are about 50%. Infidelity rates uh, range between 20 and 40% or so. Uh, and, so and people do mate switching. So, so threats to relationships are very real. They're omnipresent. If you have a desirable mate, there are going to be other people who are going to be interested in your desirable mate either for a sexual encounter or for a long-term relationship. And so mate poachers abound and infidelity abounds. And so we need a defense mechanism to protect against those threats. Mm -hmm. So I can, I can understand, I can see how jealousy can be adaptive and why it could be um, a positive force for a certain type of mating strategy. But we always hear these stories about um, jealousy, pushing people over the edge. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, instances in which jealousy calls people to go so far as to hurt another, their mate. And also why that, why would that be? What, what do we speculate is the, is the reasoning behind such action? Because you're, you're deleting your mate that you should be protecting and that you're trying to protect from mate poaching. So what, how does all that work? Yes. Uh, great question. And that's precisely why I call my, I titled my book, the dangerous passion because jealousy, even though it is adaptive, is also dangerous. Uh, to give two concrete examples, it is, it is the leading cause of spousal abuse, spousal battering, or what they call nowadays intimate partner violence, and it's also the leading cause of mate murder. And so it is, in fact, an extremely dangerous emotion, and there are aspects of the violence that it produces that could be functional, uh, but there are also aspects of the violence that it produces that could be maladaptive. So I think that uh, men especially sometimes use violence or the threat of violence to deter their partner from leaving the relationship or to deter their partner from engaging in sexual infidelity. Now, it, it, it may seem very abhorrent to us, but this sometimes works. And it works because the woman is sometimes afraid to leave the relationship. Uh, and sometimes the violence causes her to, uh, causes her self-esteem to plummet. And to the degree that self-esteem is a reflection of your own appraisal of your mate value, your assessment of your own mate value, if it causes your esteem to drop, it's going to cause your self-assessed mate value to drop. And so... In a, in a very unfortunate way, women who are battered sometimes believe that they're, they're, they can't do any better out there on the mating market. And so in an in a, uh, unfortunate way, jealous, jealousy and the violence that it produces can sometimes be quite functional. Now, when it results in the death of a partner, then it's, it's I think, fairly clearly um, maladaptive, at least certainly maladaptive in the modern environments, because murder, when someone gets murdered, when, a, when, a, when, especially when a woman gets murdered, the, the first person the police look to is boyfriend or husband, ex-boyfriend or ex-husband, because that's uh, between 50 and 70% of all women who are murdered are murdered by their romantic partners or ex-romantic partners. And so, um, and, and given that murder has the highest solve rate of any crime, it's about 70% solve rate, uh, you, you will almost surely go to jail if you, if you murder your partner. So it's, it's maladaptive in multiple senses, both destroying a very valuable reproductive resource and spending the rest of your life in a cage. But the sublethal forms of violence can be functional in certain contexts. Of course, some men uh, take it far too far. And it's important to recognize that even if the violence 
is functional in the sense of retaining the mate, that doesn't mean that we should morally approve it or, um, in, in fact, just the opposite. I think because we know that jealousy is the leading cause of spousal abuse, we should do everything we can to prevent it. So finding that something is adaptive or was adaptive in the past and is an evolved part of our psychology, that doesn't uh, offer an excuse or justification for the commission of, of crimes. Right. That's a very important point that um, I'm glad um, people who study psychology from an evolutionary perspective um, try to make more and more often these days. And it's important to say it's not um, just to say that it's so doesn't mean that it's condoned or should be condoned. Yes. And, and there are many things that are that are like that. I mean, we, you know, diseases are natural. Um, and, um, you know, in some sense, uh, cancer is natural and even senescence, the fact that we um, die early uh, rather than live forever is, is part of nature. It's part of who we're designed, uh, what the way we're designed. But we choose because of our value system. We say, no, we want to live a long time. And so we, we interfere. So just because something is natural doesn't mean that it's something we should do or endorse or use as a justification for excusing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when I covered, um, very briefly, when I covered um, cops in courts for a newspaper, I remember police officers saying that the most dangerous situation they could get into was whenever they were called into a domestic dispute because they knew that that's the sort of thing where people will do things they wouldn't normally do if they had uh, complete control of their, um, you know, mind. And the even from, um, you know, a gritty uh, police officer's perspective, jealousy is one of those th states of mind where a person becomes um, very unpredictable and very uh, and hyper-violent. And um, I think that's an, an amazing thing to know about human beings. And I'm reminded of the... Um, there was an astronaut, if you recall, who... Uh, yes. And so I think about an astronaut being the most... Um, someone who is really, really good at controlling their thoughts and emotions and, and they're able to devote lots of time and attention to a task. So there's a lot of self-control that comes with being an astronaut. Yet um, there was this uh, famous case of the astronaut who um, drove... Uh, all the way across the country to kidnap and possibly murder one of um, a woman she believed was involved in a love triangle with a man that she was involved with. Um, so, is it reasonable to say that uh, a jealous state of mind is is a, is a dangerous state of mind? Or, or, from your perspective, what is um, what is happening there? How is this person losing control of their normal faculties? Yes. Well, I think that our uh, it, it's part of what I call uh, yeah, uh, emotional wisdom, uh, and I hate to use the word emotional wisdom in the context in this particular context. But um, historically, what you're referring to is uh, uh, crimes of passion. When, when at least when you're talking about the police when they're called to a domestic dispute, often these domestic dispute, disputes are about infidelity or threats to infidelity or suspicions of infidelity, and. Um, historically, it's interesting that our legal system has uh, historically given uh, uh, sort of a discount for crimes of passion. So, so, for example, in the state of Texas, up until 1974, if a man came home from work, found his wife in bed naked with uh, another man and killed one of the two of them or both, uh, it wasn't considered murder. Uh, but if he if he went away for an hour, thought about it, and then came back and killed him, then it was premeditated murder. Hmm. Uh, now, in 1974, they got that off the books. But even to this day, people often give it, uh, juries and judges give discounts in terms of the severity of the sentence if it is a crime of passion as opposed to a premeditated murder. Now, in the case of the astronaut, that was a premeditated case. That The, the, the jealousy proved so powerful in that woman and because she was threatened by this rival. She was in love with a man and um, and was threatened by this rival. Well, yeah, so she wore those astronaut diapers and drove for 800 miles and with the at least the, um, the seeming tools that would have enabled her to kill, the, um, kill her rival. Fortunately, she was unable to do that. 
But, um, but yeah, jealousy, as I said, that's why I talk, titled my book, The Dangerous Passion. It is, it is an emotion that when people are in the, in the grips of it causes, causes them to do sometimes very horrendous things. And so police should be uh, <laughs> cautious around someone who is in that state of enraged jealousy. It's, it's almost like they're, um, you know, some people who are on um, certain types of drugs become uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. Uh, jealousy is also one of those things. It's a natural emotion, and, but it becomes uncontrollable in certain circumstances. See, when I, when I hear that story and I hear you uh, speak about it in this way, and I think about how uh, I, have to, I have to fight for self-control to not eat, you know, uh, a burrito. And then this, uh, uh-huh. here's a person who's got all this self-control and they can't stop themselves from uh, driving seven or 800 miles to do these crazy things. It shows that um, may, maybe we should look to psychology for some advice. So let me ask you some advice. Um, first of all, what are some warning signs that, um, that uh, people in relationships should know about that are clues that their partner maybe uh may become dangerously jealous in the future well a few cues that we know about and these are cues that are statistically correlated with the uh, increased probability of violence are one is if the man uh and men both men and women can get violent but on average men's violence tends to do more a lot more damage than women's not not always but but um, typically. So if the guy starts uh, cutting off her relationships with her family or friends, in other words, cutting off her social relationships, that's a predictor. Uh, second, if he berates her or uh, verbally abuses her or lowers her self-esteem, um, that's, another, um, that's another indicator that uh, jealousy might be, um, uh, that the violence might occur in the future. So, um, uh, so, so those are, those are the two big ones, isolation, social isolation. The a third one is intense vigilance or monitoring. So guys sometimes get so extreme that they won't let their wife or girlfriend go to the grocery store alone, um, because they're afraid that they'll have some contact with, with a rival. And so, uh, so these intense efforts to control and monitor and, uh, be vigilant and cut off other social relations. These, these are dangerous signs. It, you know, in part, one of the things that uh, other people serve, that is friends and family, is they serve effectively as bodyguards. Mm-hmm. So if, um, you know, a brother or a father of a woman or a friend is around, then men are much less likely to be beating them up. So bodyguards act as deterrents to men who might otherwise get violent. And so I would advise women who are in these situations, their partner starts cutting off their social ties and lowering their self-esteem and, and hyper-monitoring them, including these days uh, hacking into their email accounts, uh, their cell phones, et cetera. Um, these are danger signs. Mm-hmm. And what if, what if you're the person doing this sort of thing? Maybe you're not doing it at, a, at an extreme level yet, but you notice that you have tendencies to be incredibly jealous. What sort of things, uh, what, what should, you, should you be doing to avoid getting in, into um, a dangerous situation? Well, I guess it, you know, it depends on what you, what you want to do with it. I, it. It's a tricky balance because, because as I said, jealousy is this, it, it's like um, it can serve as an early, an early warning sign. So um, jealousy sometimes gets activated not when there's necessarily an immediate threat to infidelity or defection from the relationship, but it can get activated by things like if there's a mate value discrepancy that opens up. So for example, one of the things that we know is that if a man loses his job, then that lowers his mate value and a mate value discrepancy can open up where one previously wasn't there. And so uh, it's typically the case that the lower mate value person gets more jealous and also jealousy uh, functions to alert us to threats that are on, on what I call the horizon of the relationship. They might not be immediately present, but they might be lurking on the horizon. Perhaps the partner is becoming you know, a little bit less satisfied with the relationship. Perhaps they're starting to look elsewhere to see maybe I can do better out there on the mating market. 
And so jealousy can serve as this early, early warning sign. And so trying to suppress it will it, is it could be in essence like um, taking the smoke alarm in your house and and taking the battery out. You know, you could be um, uh, not alert to fires that are happening in either in your house or in your relationship. And so and so it's a delicate balance though. And but I think if you find yourself engaging in these more severe actions like cutting off your partner's social relationships, you know, insisting that they not talk to members of the opposite sex or, or try to cut off their kin ties, or if you find you're abusing your partner and lowering their self-esteem through insults, then I think these are warning signs to you that you're becoming dangerous. So um, that's frightening. And uh, those are all important pieces of advice. And I hope anyone who's listening to this and is involved in a relationship, and especially if you're on the receiving end of this sort of behavior, to really go ahead and seek professional uh, advice if you're in a situation like that, I, I urge you. Um, I, was, uh, I wanted to take one question here from, our, from my Facebook page. I promised that I'd let people ask you a question. And um, one of my, this is a great question from, <laughs> to, a, to a scientist. Justin Adams asks, have you found that uh, your new insights into the mechanisms of jealousy have made you less prone to feeling this emotion? It is a great question. Uh, and the short answer is, is no. And I'll just draw an analogy to uh, taste preferences. We, when we put sugar on our tongue or honey on our tongue, we experience the, uh, the sensation of sweetness. Uh, and we have this evolved taste preference. Now, you can know that, and knowledge of that, though, doesn't really change the experience of sweetness when honey is placed on your tongue. Similarly, you can know at some abstract cognitive level what jealousy is all about, how it operates, what its functions are, but that doesn't change the fact that if a partner gives off cues to infidelity or defection, that doesn't change the experience of jealousy. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so uh, now, fortunately, I haven't, um, uh, at least not recently, confronted any issues having to do with infidelity or defection. Uh, so, but, uh, but in my experience, the answer is no. It, ha it, it doesn't change it at all. Wow. It, it has made me more sensitive to what's going on in other people's relationships, though, and, and in my own. So, I mean, I know... You know, I can when I start to feel jealous, or when my partner starts to feel jealous, I, I have a greater understanding of exactly what's going on. But it doesn't alter the experience itself. Wow. So I um, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, and I wanted to ask a couple questions about evolutionary psychology itself because um, I'm sure since you are one of the leading voices in evolutionary psychology, that you know that um, a large portion, especially. Uh, a lot of people online, when, as soon as you begin an evolutionary psychology discussion, they start to disparage the very notion of evolutionary psychology. Um, and I wanted to see if you could address a few of the things that I often hear about. I've always wanted to hear what you had to say about it. Um, for instance, some people say that evolutionary psychology is one of those sciences that's just mostly speculation and mostly just so stories. And uh, how would you respond to that specific criticism? Well, it's it, it's simply not true. Um, it's an empirical science. Um, you know, do some people speculate? Of course, uh, there's nothing wrong with speculation as long as it's framed in a scientific manner in the form of testable hypotheses. And if you look at the science of evolutionary psychology, for example, I would urge listeners to pick up a copy of my textbook uh, called Evolutionary Psychology, The New Science of the Mind. And there are over a thousand references in that textbook to empirical studies that have tested evolutionary hypotheses that have been put forward in advance of the empirical research. And so while that criticism of uh, the justice started in speculation might have been true 25 or 30 years ago when uh, E.O. Wilson published Sociobiology, it's simply not true today. And so um, anyone who levels that accusation is simply not current on the status of the science. Okay. And I'm sure you're aware of um, the seduction and uh, pickup artist subculture of which uh, mystery became very famous, even got a TV show. And um, all those people in that um, subculture, they claim to be 
using the tricks and the findings of evolutionary psychology to be successful in what they do. What is um, your uh, what are your thoughts concerning that weird popularization that's coming out of people like mystery and those people like that? Yeah, well, you know, I think that when when it comes to uh, mating, people will use whatever they whatever they can. Um, in the in the pickup artist community, there are of course different schools of thought, and but no one's really done any systematic empirical studies to test you know whether this tactic or that tactic is effectiveness. On mystery specifically, um, one of the key things. It, that he advocates is is what he calls demonstration of value, and it's simply the notion, and, and it, it's it's not even unique necessarily to evolutionary psychology. Although evolutionary psychologists have made it a little bit more formal, but that is individuals differ in mate value, and women look for guys who are high in mate value, and so a lot of these pickup artist techniques involve trying to demonstrate that you have high mate value. So, for example, by exploiting what I call the attention structure, going into a room and then having other people, uh, especially other men, uh, as well as women, focused on you because we use the attention structure to infer someone's status. Mm -hmm. And status is, of course, an important component of mate value for men. And so, um, you know, I don't I don't necessarily I don't advocate uh, using or, or and certainly not misusing these these tactics, I think that women are uh, the uh, modern women are evolutionary success stories. They're the uh, descendants of a long line of success for mothers and their mothers and their mothers and their mothers. And as such, most women are not duped by uh, by false signals. Mm -hmm. Most women are cued into honest signals, and they have mating mechanisms designed to assess honest signals as a to deceptive signals. So, um, so I don't know how many, uh, I think it's more these, these, uh, the pickup artists, it's, it's more their, uh, males who are managing to convince other males to cough up a lot of money to, um, uh, to, uh, on the promise that they're going to improve their mating chances. But I don't know of any good empirical evidence that suggests that they actually succeed. <laughs> you hear that graduate students? There's your, uh, there's your thesis. Um, the uh, so like what what is something and this uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up after this. What is um what's some well, what's a gross misconception that you hear all the time about evolutionary psychology that makes you wince as a person who studies this has devoted uh, your professional career to it? What are some things that that you hear coming out of uh, you know uh, lay people and on the internet that make you go oh no no that's just ridiculous? Uh, I guess I would I would say a couple things. One is the notion that somehow if it's evolved, then that means we can't change it. And, and, and that's simply not true. It's, it's, it's an error in thinking. Um, a, a second that, that bothers me is they think that people, if people worry that if, if something is evolved, then it serves as a justification for bad behavior. So the classic one is if males have evolved a desire for sexual variety, then the guy will say to his wife, oh, look, look, uh, honey, I couldn't help cheating. You know, my evolved desire for sexual variety made me do it, you know, or my genes made me do it. And, of course, that that is, uh, you know, uh, abhorrent to me that someone would use that as a justification. But but I actually heard men say uh, quite the opposite, that that knowledge of in this particular case of their evolved desire for sexual variety actually makes them stay more faithful to their partners because when they find themselves attracted to another woman, they don't think, oh, it means I don't love my wife. They, they realize, oh, no, it's, that's my evolved desire for sexual variety. And people can, can and do love their partners totally, but yet still be sometimes attracted to other individuals. So I think actually greater knowledge in this domain, in this case the mating domain, uh, gives people more power and should not provide excuses or justifications for bad behavior. So what are you working on now? What, are, what In looking to the future, what is David Buss working on? Well, what David Buss is working on is um, I'm working on a new book on what I call the dark side of human mating. And it deals with all the, the bad stuff, you know, um, things like, 
uh, adaptations for sexual exploitation, uh, things like stalking, things like intimate partner violence that we've talked about, things like sexual slavery and prostitution, uh, mating motives for murder, other sorts of things like that. So I'm basically, in my new book, I'm going to be focusing on the dark side of human mating because I think it's it's extremely important to look at. Of course, jealousy is, is part of that, but that's just only one piece of the puzzle. If somebody wanted to find you uh, on the Internet and keep up with you, how would they do that? Uh, best way is just go to my website, which is uh, my name, David Buss, uh, D-A-B-I-D-B-U-S-S dot com. Uh, and on my website, davidbuss.com, I have uh, all my uh, publications, so you can download all the articles free. Uh, it also shows the, um, the half dozen or so books that I've published, if people are interested in those. And it also has other items of information like interviews and um, uh, videos of talks that I've given and uh, even uh slides on PowerPoints on how to teach evolutionary psychology. So there's a lot of stuff on my website, uh, davidbuss.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you, David. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is part of the Boing Boing network of podcasts. And they just added a new podcast. It's called Boars, Gore, and Swords. You can find this podcast and all the others at boingboing.net. This one in particular is hosted by Ivan Hernandez and Red Scott, both stand-up comedians. And in each episode, they break down HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. They also talk about movies and science fiction and TV and fantasy and all sorts of other stuff. They also curse a great deal, so be ready for that. And, um... If you really are into Game of Thrones, the books or the uh, the television show, you should really check it out. And basically, if you're just into anything science fiction or fantasy, check out Boars, Gore, and Swords at boingboing.net. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. On each C episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. And you can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book or my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb. I also post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And this week, I'm going to eat a chocolate chip cookie ice cream sandwich made from a recipe sent in by Fernando Cordiero. And I apologize if I got your last name wrong. Okay, so this thing is totally insane because what it is, is uh, it's two cookies. Uh one on each side, like a, like a hamburger. And in the inside is uh, vanilla ice cream riddled with chocolate chips. And the recipe itself, just the cookies themselves are incredible. They're fantastic. They're some of the best cookies I've ever had in my entire life. That's right. Yes. I've eaten some of the cookies uh, ahead of time, um, but not the sandwich. And um, the ingredients include brown sugar, white sugar, butter, vanilla extract, um, instant coffee, instant coffee, uh, milk, chocolate chips, semi sweet chocolate chips, flaxseed, millet, and uh, of course, ice cream and chocolate chips. So, um, this thing requires a whole lot of preparation and you have to freeze the, um, the concoction overnight or at least for four hours before you get started. So I'm only going to take one uh, bite of this and I'm going to get away from the microphone so you won't hear me chomping. Um, and here we go. The cookie has a caramel color to it, and uh, it's just this big old. Oh, so looks so good. Let's see what let's see what we can do here. Mm hmm. Oh. Oh yeah. Okay. So I just didn't know what an ice cream sandwich was supposed to taste like. This is what it's supposed to taste like. Oh wow. 
That is great. That is... That makes me proud to have a mouth. Look, I just have to be honest with you. The ice cream cookie part of this is unnecessary because these are maybe the best chocolate chip cookies I've ever had because they have that coffee stuff in them. They have instant coffee in them. And the other, the other stuff makes up the texture. And it's just, uh, it's like a mocha coffee in a, in a cookie. All this together. I, um, I hope you make this. Uh, everyone, go make this. Make this and report back to me how your life has improved because it will. Not only will your life improve, but it will make you a better person. It will make you a better human being. You'll be able to follow politics after this. Um, you will take up ceramics. And on top of all that, you will finally understand why people are into uh, Mark Rothko paintings. So um, if you want to improve your jump shot, eat one of these cookies every 14 days. Oh my God, they're fantastic. And now it's on to self-delusion news. I found this uh, really interesting article in Time, Time Magazine, ideas.time.com. And the um, headline is, Where Women Are More Competitive Than Men. A field experiment in the matriarchal society proves that the drive to compete is not just biologically determined. In this uh, story, it de details the, uh, the exploits of some scientists who researched what it was like... Uh, to compete among men and among women uh, in two different societies, one being very matriarchal and one being very patriarchal. So this is what they say. This is a quote from the article. It was clear we were in a parallel universe and we were thrilled. In fact, we had journeyed to this matrilineal region as part of a large scale field experiment we had designed in order to help us solve one of the most vexing economic gender questions in Western society. Do women make less money and occupy fewer management positions than their male counterparts because they are innately less competitive or do societal influences play a vital role in our competitive inclinations? So the question is, are human males more competitive than human females by their nature or is this something that is uh, more influenced by our upbringing and, and the culture we find ourselves within and so on? So in this study, what they did is they uh, were able to find two groups of people, um, two um, tribes that were polar opposites. One is the ultra-patriarchal Maasai tribe of Tanzania, and the other is the matrilineal Kasi of northern India. And the goal, the scientists write in this uh, article, was to compare the way men and women in those tribes compete under the exact same experimental conditions. Here's how the experiment worked. They brought these people in, these two different tribes, and uh, they had the people in the tribe throw tennis balls into buckets. And they gave the people 10 chances each to get the ball in the bucket, but they offered them an option beforehand. They could either get $1.50 for each successful try, or they could compete with other people. And if you did better than the other person that you were competing against, you would get $4.50 for each successful pitch. And if you did exactly the same, if you tied, you'd get $1.50. But if the other person did better than you, then you get nothing. So this basically is a, a test to see uh, would they go for the easy thing or would they go for the competitive thing? And what they found was that among the Maasai, the men chose to compete half the time. 50% of the men chose to compete, whereas 26% of the women chose to compete. And that matches the numbers that we see or the psychology sees uh, in the United States. And when you try this exact same experiment among the people of the United States or in any other really Western country, we find that it breaks out about the same. The men are more willing to compete than the women at about that same level. 50% of the men, 26% of the women. But now they test that with the matrilineal society of the Kasi. And that what they found was that it was flipped. In, in this experiment, the exact same conditions, you found that 54% of the women chose to compete and 39% of the men. So the uh, women in the Kasi were much more likely to compete than the patriarchal society of the Maasai. So, and the scientists said that the reason for this, that they speculate, is that Kasi society is set up so that women have all the economic power. In fact, in the article, they, um, they, quote 
someone from the uh, Kasi Society saying that um, men are just breeding bulls and babysitters. And, um, you know, men have to, are, are not allowed to own property. And uh, it's just a situation in which um, the gender roles are such that women hold all the economic power. And so they speculate that's why in that society they're more likely to compete, which brings into question, hey, is it that men are more competitive by nature or is it something that is brought up by culture? Here's a culture where the women are more likely to compete. And they say in the article, the scientists say the average woman will compete more than the average man if the right cultural incentives are in place. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about at youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find information about my book, You Are Not So Smart, and my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb, and merchandise like shirts, confirmation bias t-shirts, people. You want these things. Uh, and uh, mugs, Benjamin Franklin hater blocker mugs. Yes, they exist. You can buy them. And uh, please visit boingboing.net for more great podcasts. If you want to find me online, I tweet at David McCraney. You are not so smart tweets at not smart blog. And uh, you can go to the website or to the Twitter accounts or to the Facebook accounts to find out when new podcasts come out. Thank you so much for listening. And the song at the beginning is Clash by Caravan Palace.